up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And this episode is going to be really fun. I've uh, I've been wanting to have a discussion about the political economy of, of movie making and especially to talk about the, the writer's strike and the actor's strike that's kind of pushed pause on a lot of filmmaking nationwide but not globally. And my guest today is the perfect Sherpa to kind of help us get a grasp on maybe how Hollywood works or doesn't work. Uh, he's a producer, director, editor, a writer, and he's also currently on strike. Kevin Fox, welcome to the show, man. Uh, I'm, glad to ha- I'm glad to be here, man. My name is Kevin Fox. I've done some uh, development work on adaptations for video games, uh, a bunch of IP. A lot of it's in the dark, and that's something I'll be going into. Uh, currently, the strike. I'm working at the game studio Mischief. Uh, video games are not covered under WGA rules. Uh-huh. That's a completely separate category, not even unionized. So, that's what I've been doing to kind of keep my uh, my income going, to say. But uh, in addition, uh, in addition, uh, but I can talk about. I've done work on uh, shows as crew on shows like Westworld, Animal Kingdom, and uh, a bit on Drunk History. Actually, <laughs> that's funny. So I I assume I actually don't know for sure, but do you live in L.A.? I do live in L.A. Uh, technically, I live in Torrance, which is just south of L.A. Nice. Yeah, I'm from L.A. originally. And when I was a kid, I actually lived in that shitty apartment complex in Reseda that Daniel LaRusso lived in in The Karate Kid. And so, oh, really? Yeah, that must have been a trip. Uh, I remember uh, I actually watched what was it like? I forgot the name of it. It was a Dustin Hoffman like crime movie from like the 1970s where he's like a, a con trying to go straight. And uh, I remember I, I went to uh, the new Beverly cinema and I kind of had an existential crisis when I realized that the shitty apartment that he got after he gets out of prison was my old apartment That's when funny. I first moved to LA. <laughs> <laughs> Man. So you know this, but for the audience's sake, I, I discovered you because of this epic tweet thread you had about the movie industry that kind of went viral, and I'll link to it in the show notes, um, even though we're going to expand on a lot of it here. It was clear from that thread that like, you understood the industry at a level that I just totally don't, and there was so much in, in the sort of hot take that was worth uh, teasing out further, but... It was really the first time I'd seen anybody talk about like the economics of film in a way that had a kind of foreign policy angle. You brought in the role of the state. It was just really smart, which you don't you can't say about a lot of stuff on Twitter. So like I kind of want to explore that whole area a bit, but the best entry point for that might actually be the thing that like we're all living through right now or you know LA's living through, right, which is the um, WGA and SAG strikes, Writers Guild of America and uh Screen Actors Guild, right? So, can you explain, you know, what the strike is, what the WGA's demands are, you know, if people who who know politics but they're not tracking the strike closely or maybe aren't in the entertainment industry, what what should they know? Well, there's a lot of the finer points which I actually suggest that a lot of people actually look at the actual official WGA uh, website because they're able to go to, into it a little bit more than I am. But I'm going to give everyone a kind of a brief rundown. Um. There are a couple of major concerns. A lot of this is the fact that a lot of stuff that was kind of left on the table in the 2008 strike never, never got properly addressed. That includes a lot of like the stuff with streaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, Netflix uh, was kind of allowed to not provide residuals and kind of undercut a lot of people by claiming that it's new media. Uh, and now uh, in 2023, we are seeing them regularly put out like $200 million movies. So claim that they are new media and are just, oh, we're still growing. We're still growing. Doesn't really hold water anymore. Yeah, that's actually one of the reasons why these budgets are so inflated because they have so much upfront. They essentially have to do that, otherwise actors won't sign on because they'll be like, "Well, either you gotta pay me like ten million dollars upfront mm-hmm. if you're not gonna give me any residuals." But anyway, that's like a major concern because a lot of the streamers kind of operate the same thing with the that. Uh, another thing is that there's been a lot of other uh, factors in this. Uh, you see a lot of the CEOs bring in uh, AI, and this has been something that like, a lot of people wised up because basically in 2008 strike, a lot of them were like, with streaming, it's like, oh, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And then in 2023, everyone's worrying about pretty much the new state of things that has been created by the thing that we were told not to worry about. And basically all the producers are basically like, when it comes to AI, oh, don't worry about it. And we're like, 
you said that last time. <laughs> and look how things turned out. We're not trusting you on this run. But uh, basically, a major concern is not that necessarily the writers are going to be replaced, but they're essentially going to try to get around all these copyright things. Because I'm sure that a lot of the viewers, and you have been following the cases, where basically a lot of U.S. judges have ruled that things that have been wholly created from artificial intelligence are not eligible for copyright. Hmm. Well, a ma major concern a lot of people have is essentially writers being brought in after the fact to essentially do a quote-unquote human pass on an AI written script to bring it up to snuff. And that actually cheats out a lot of these writers of their original script fees. It effectively cuts out a major step with a major payday out of the entire process. This is the fucking Harry Braverman wrote this book a long time ago, um, Labor Monopoly Capital. And he, he talked about there's this tendency toward de-skilling of workers. And it sounds like Absolutely. that's that's what AI is is for the creative writers. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of journalists have kind of, you know, it's not my place. I'm not a journalist, but uh, a lot of journalists have correctly pointed out that essentially what tech and a lot of these companies are trying to do is the same stuff that got uh, done to journalism over the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. Like uh, one of my close friends, William Kuchenberg, uh, he used to write for Cracked and like a bunch of online magazines. But as a result of kind of like AI coming in. A lot of those jobs eventually essentially got skilled because they no longer got saw as like skilled writers. Hmm. But before that entire process, before that kind of like that mass killing of those jobs, there was this entire devaluing of labor that happened. Or like you know, you used to got get paid like a decent thing. You could write two articles and essentially be set for a month. But essentially, what happened was like they started lowering those fees more and more and more. Mm -hmm. And now they just completely got a lot of these jobs, but not to great effect. If you actually look at the response to a lot of these uh, AI written articles, it's just been like they flat out get a lot of these details wrong. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah. Um, another thing that's uh, stepping away from AI for a moment. Another issue here is one of the things that kind of happened with the advent of streaming was mini rooms. Uh, essentially, it's basically like you have about like 46 writers that involved in a season. Um, but effect effectively, like they get in a room for a month, they break the entire story of the season. They fire about like four out of those six writers or like two uh, out of those six writers, or even like three out of those six writers after those two months and effectively get the last writer to completely to write all the rest of the scripts for the show. Uh, you got a lot of people that are running themselves ragged doing this mm -hmm. because, uh, secondary, it's not just writers, right? They're not just guys who sit behind it on a keyboard and, type out the script a lot of the time writers are brought in on set because sometimes you'll just run into a problem on set it's a logistical problem and then you have to figure out what are the changes that we can make that can affect the story mm -hmm. um last year i produced a short film with uh lee shorten called happy traveler uh i was the writer and the director on that and a lot of the changes that we, we made to the script were on the day due to uh us recognizing story issues due to us having a location fell through uh, and ways to completely do it. Like I completely changed a, a major scene of that script upon seeing a location and realizing that I didn't need the three extra actors I had originally played. So you need, when you're producing a show traditionally, you need a showrunner who is the right, the lead writer, and you need a writer's room who is their team, who's brainstorming, making making the magic or whatever. And the mini rooms breaks up this. Yeah, because effectively, um, and this is something I'm working on with uh, Mischief. I can't go into details because it's NDA, but I can kind of at least describe the process. But effectively, the entire purpose of a writer's room is to kind of reduce individual cognitive load on each writer. Mm -hmm. And that actually allows uh, a lot of the other details that one writer working on the script might miss to kind of come through. It also means that because you have that instant feedback, you're actually getting a better version of that draft finished. And while you might see this kind of argument that, oh, it's like reducing authorial attempt, it's like, well, first of all, that's the duty of the showrunner. The showrunner's duty is to keep all of those writers on track and within the kind of the confines of the tone of the show. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, that's just managing people. That's part of the job of showrunner. It's not like you're going to have these two other writers click like come into something like uh let's say mind hunter and then want to turn it into desperate housewives <laughs> like that's just not something that happens unless like a showrunner got replaced 
So but the, yeah. the writers... that was that was a take I, I saw on Twitter a couple times. So I just want to kind of address that. Yeah, no, that's really <laughs> good. Uh, yeah. And like, you know, my audience is it's hit and miss how clued in yeah. they are to what's going on with the strike. So this is important. So I think a lot of people have this romantic impression that like if you're a screenwriter in L.A., you're living the good life. You know, um, I've seen some pretty appalling stories that sort of convey how precariously most people are in this industry uh and you can have like a, a, a box office movie on, on your resume and then still not be able to make rent you know and so i guess that leads to a question of like what's economic life like for creative workers like how do you get gigs what is pay structured like you talked about the mini rooms already what is employment like yeah, um, it's it depends. I mean, I'm lucky that uh, with this game, I'm under contract until like uh, essentially 2025. So that's good. That's long term employment. Mm -hmm. But I'm about to tell you why I'm doing this and still keeping a, a, a foot in the industry. Effectively, the thing that you have to understand is that a majority of your work as a writer, unless you're staffed on a regular like 24 episode season, like, you know, the guys that work on NCIS uh like your, your standard procedural mm -hmm. those guys have regular employment it's basically like you're kind of unless uh some kind of major shakeup happens in the writer's room you're probably going to come back next season as long as you're kind of like performing to standards regular employment um, as long as the show keeps going right yeah, that's yeah. kind of how it works with television okay features is kind of a different beat and a lot of people especially if like they're developing tv shows or features can kind of run into a, a problem that i ran into in my career, which is effectively you get kind of trapped in the dark doing a lot of the work that goes behind the scenes of a lot of productions before the public even hears about it. Hmm. Uh, I've worked on several prominent pieces of IP for major production companies uh, that never saw the light of day and I was not paid for. That is effectively how a lot of the work goes. You're kind of working on this stuff at Conspect, expecting a payday if it, it gets greenlit but factors beyond your control be they oh the executive you're directly working under got uh, let go be it um one of the companies that you were uh talking to had a complete change of heart about who they want to handle things after uh a game that was licensed on one of their ip completely collapsed what like all of that stuff are factors that can completely kind of stall a career in the water uh, when they're in that period. And, you know, then there's also times where you're like, you get brought in to do rewrites. Sometimes you're brought to do rewrites on spec and then you don't get paid because the, the there's film a lot of unpaid actually, labor here. Yeah. Yeah. There is an insane amount of unpaid labor that goes around. And that's actually one of the major sticking points of the WGA rule is that like legally, they're not supposed to do that according to the contract. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that the WGA is trying to push for is to make it so, hey, um, you're like you will get in trouble if you do that. But effectively, uh, the producer goes like, well, 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 we'll talk to our producers and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see what we can do about that. But, you know, uh, we don't have to have these hard rules. But, you know, if anyone's ever worked with any kind of uh, company and and any kind of labor negotiation, you know that when they do that, they have every intention of violating that rule. Mm hmm. Man, that but, sounds pretty uh, anyway, insecure. <laughs> yeah, but like, uh, just to illustrate it, like, um, I, I lost a major gig uh, in uh, 2021, mm -hmm. and uh, effectively, uh, uh, 20, a lot of 2022 was kind of spent in the wilderness while the my current gig was spinning up. Um, while I was also doing like a lot of development work, uh, I was doing stuff like uh, data entry, temp work, uh, like I was writing for a mobile game. I was doing Uber Eats driving, like. That's pretty par for the course with a lot of writers that, you know, are working out. It's actually one of the reasons why the uh, Writers Guild is so hardy throughout the strike is that we've already had these periods of unemployment where we have had to seek alternative forms of employment. So you could get like you could get, I mean, 100K, let's say, for which is way higher than the the industry minimum. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you, uh, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're getting a feature script, it's like I, I believe it's like around 75k minimum. But there are certain factors that you have to take into account. One is taxes. Two agent is uh, right? agent, lawyer, and manager. Hmm. 
that takes a huge chunk out of that 100k and then what you're left with has to keep you afloat through periods of in the wilderness through periods of uncertainty or you don't get paid for some labor that you thought you were going to get or something so like it's it's your cushion too yeah it's I mean, that was a thing I got taught when I did crew work was effectively it's like, you know, you may look at your paycheck and you may think, oh, this is an insane amount of money. But it's like you also got to think into it like you don't know where that next paycheck is coming from. So mm. it's like, you know, that was the thing that I saw taught to grips was basically like, yeah, don't go don't buy, go buying that new jet ski just because you get like a major paycheck from doing all the overtime on like uh, uh, Westworld or whatever. Wow. Yeah. There's there's something romantic about the life of a creative, but like the economics of it are pretty rough. I mean, it's at best uncertain. Right. Like, to be honest, like a lot of us are here because we're dreamers and we're like a little bit kooky. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like one of the things that frequently gets dealt at the nude counters is just like, can you do anything else besides this is one of the first questions that is asked. <laughs> yeah uh, because uh it, it can be extremely rough but um it's definitely it's just definitely like that kind of uh uncertainty is one of the things that the wga is trying to fight against it's one of the reasons why they're trying to aim for minimum room sizes because in addition to that economic uncertainty there's an entire crash that's coming up when it comes to talent because you're having entire generations of uh writers that came up during the streaming era that never got to work set mm -hmm. meaning that if they're getting tapped to be a showrunner they do not know how to manage the practicalities of actually filming oh see i was gonna ask about this like i listened to a bunch of screenwriter podcasts just for you know shits and gigs and I've, I've heard all of them at different points talk about how coming up as a writer used to be very different like especially pre-streaming what was different in before times compared to now well, effectively, it was like there was kind of a, a growth program. Like, um, this is something I kind of ran into when I was starting because I'm I'm younger. Like, you know, I, I moved to LA in 2015, like after I graduated college. And one of the things that just kept on happening was just like, you know, you you I tried following the advice of people that came before. And effectively, I found out it no longer worked. Everything had gotten so regimented and streamlined that like, you know, the old advice of like, take a job, any job often wouldn't work because you'd often get seen as just your role and not for any kind of potential that you had. Hmm. Like, you know, you take a job doing like security on a, a film program, you just get seen as just the security. Uh, but like, you know, there was entire, and as a result of this, there was this entire issue uh, that came up a couple of years ago with a lot of the support staff mm -hmm. that, like, you know, you think that, oh, you get support staff, you're a writer's assistant, like, uh, eventually, like, after like a year or two, you're probably going to like end up at the actual room, writing a script for yourself. There were people that like had been doing this for like close to a decade now, and still had not a single episode of TV under their belt as credit. So there's no mobility anymore. Yes. Uh, and a huge reason for that was the advent of movement mini rooms meaning that like like a lot of these showrunners were asking for larger writing staff just to help kind of reduce the cognitive workload of uh trying to produce a show yeah but in doing so um and a lot of these kind of cutbacks it meant that there was no longer the avenue for growth mm -hmm. that there used to be in the 90s where basically like you know you would have someone that like did a season of television uh as a writer's decision and maybe by the end of that season uh, like best case scenario, they ended up with a script under the belt. Not so much anymore. Nope. Um, <laughs> not so much anymore. <laughs> Man. Okay. Pretty bleak. So we've got these behemoths like Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, Apple TV, Amazon, whatever, a few others. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me about the streaming business model? Like big picture, how does it work? You know, does the streaming model make it easier to precaritize creative workers in some way? Um, it's difficult. Uh, it, it's a very complicated response. I've argued as, and this is not coming from me, this is a take that a lot of other people have had, mm -hmm. that uh, the advent of streaming has kind of led to a lot of stuff being reduced to just content. It's just reduced to, okay, it's just something that's going to be dropped in a 
drop in a week. It's going to be a flash in the pan, and then no one's going to talk about it ever. Yeah. Uh, I'd argue, especially if you look at like the actions of uh, Matt, like what used to be known as HBO Max and is now known as Max. Um, have you heard that whole? That's com- a whole fucking separate story, but yeah. Oh, it is, but like, I think it's very emblematic of like uh, the central problems here. Um, what, was, what are you? What are you doing? Demolishing like a very established brand? Like, what was the logic? I couldn't tell you. Um, there's a lot of theories out there. Uh, a lot of it pe- are people kind of looking at uh, Zaslav's background in reality television, and a lot of people are theorizing it might be some kind of personal insecurity. Judging by certain things, I honestly think a lot of the behavior is because there's certain stuff that you can get away with in reality TV that does not fly in scripted, specifically because of our unions. That's crazy. Uh, For an example, uh, going back to that point, Max got in trouble because... Max being HBO. HBO. The new name, yeah. Now Max is just their streaming service. HBO is kind of a different sub-brand. HBO still exists. It's just folded under it okay it's a weird brand recognition thing but anyway essentially what happened was they decided that they were going to rope all of the credits into just creators that led to a major problem that they still have not fixed where screenwriters directors and producers are all credited under the same credit according to the pga the wga and the dga rules you are not allowed to do that. Yeah, you have to credit the writer as the writer and the director, right? Like that's a and that's part of the yeah. step. It's part of how you be in the guilds in the first place, right? Like, right, because an entire part of how you end up kind of establishing your career is that, like, oh, you worked on this. You were the director of this. You were the writer of this episode of the X Files. You were, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you were. Uh, the guy who wrote this episode that was an Emmy award-winning one, or, you know, you were the director of this. The, you know, when you credit all of the creative import to just like this nebulous concept of the creators, it makes it more difficult for someone to point at something that they worked on and have their actual contribution to that uh, actually matter. Recognized, yeah. Because it's effectively shoving everything into a pot and just saying, all these people worked on it. Wait, so that sounds uh, illegal. I mean, what, what what is the state of play on that? They agreed that they were going to fix it, but uh, last time I checked, which might have been a month ago, they have not fixed it. Hmm. What is the economics of streaming? Like, how do the big streamers make money? Just from subscriptions, right? Yeah, largely from subscriptions, though there's oftentimes like other kind of merchandise and deals that kind of come into it. Um, It's one of the reasons why The Witcher and uh, Stranger Things are like such big cash cows for Netflix because of all the residual uh, material that comes out of it. It's one of the reasons why they're big on chasing franchises right now because Hmm. of the merchandising as a secondary source of revenue. But when everything's established IP, uh, you know, with the exception of Stranger Things, things which is an original concept that just blew up um it makes it very difficult for the next star wars or the next stranger thing so the next the witcher to get made yeah because everyone's just looking at okay what already sold well and then that traps us in a nostalgia loop because that's all we're getting we, yep exactly we have been distra- trapped in a nostalgia loop uh, one of my younger friends actually pointed out it's just like it would be very nice if like they would have something that referenced something post 2000 <laughs> yeah that's kind of crazy well so what's the incentive for like a netflix or a disney plus to make like to invest a lot in how like how does an individual streaming movie make money if the revenue is mostly through subscriptions that is a that is one of the the key kind of questions to this um my partner philip bastien actually like one of the things that's being kind of fought over in this is Everyone kind of wants all these streaming services to open up their kind of uh, internal logs so they can determine how much money things actually made. The data, yeah. Like, yeah, the data. But aside from these kind of vague things of like, oh, X amount of like hours are watching Ashoka. Oh, X amount of hours are watching like this Netflix movie. A lot of it has been very difficult to kind of ascertain. 
uh, my writing partner, Philip Bastien, has a theory that a lot of this data might actually be inflated. And that's one of the reasons why they are so reluctant to open up their books. It's like on succession. Interesting. Well, so that's that's a an industry in in trouble, it almost sounds like. I mean, <laughs> yeah, a lot of people have been theorizing that the streaming bubble was eventually going to burst. And that seems to be what's happening right now. But like for one of the things that uh, for streaming itself to be kind of profitable, it has to effectively be kind of a walled garden. It's one of the reasons why they keep on like trying to cut things off and try to keep things like kind of under the same roof. But the problem is, is that like, you know, it used to be like a lot more profitable back in the day when it was like, oh, it's like, you know, Netflix is able to license all this stuff. But mm -hmm. now that everyone's kind of created their own streaming service, you have Peacock, you have Criterion Channel, you have Hulu, you Paramount, have Disney yeah. Plus, Paramount, like all these other networks. It means that that slice of the pie has gotten smaller and smaller while the budgets of these things have gotten bigger and bigger because you kind of need to have more eyes on this thing to justify buying this. And yeah. it's just not sustainable. I mean, that's that's stuff that's been said by like Zach Sense, who was the screenwriter of Thor. Like a lot of other writers have said this, and yeah. that tends to be like a, a prevailing theory. Again, that's a theory. I cannot ascertain whether or not that's true, sure. but it would at least make it kind of understandable why they are so reluctant to open up their books. Yeah. I mean, once everybody's operating from the same information, they have less advanced. I mean, th there's, it's the same, th the playing field gets leveled in terms of bargaining to some extent. Well, this sounds like trouble. Um, there was an LA times piece that, uh, I think you had read, we had shared it with each other. Um, yeah. And it, it was, it was talking about how South Korean actors and unions, they want residuals from Netflix. Netflix has a huge presence in South Korea, but it operates like an empire through like local intermediary companies so that it's not responsible for uh, labor exploitation in South Korea. And it's not legally required to bargain with uh, Korean unions since it works through local companies. So, you know, as a first step, the Koreans are saying like they want to meet with Netflix. And so far, Netflix is telling them to fuck off like they won't even even meet. And it's hard for me to judge how much like leverage Korean unions actually have here, yeah. partly yeah, because of the data thing, you know? Yeah, it, it's difficult because, I mean, um, historically, uh, South Korea has not been kind to unions with the uh, exception of like a lot of their artistic unions. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, and the thread, I talked about how uh, that's one of the reasons why they were able to fight off both Hollywood and the State Department uh, to actually guarantee, uh, you know, their domestic quota for films mm -hmm. which led to them being able to grow as an industry to the kind of the cultural powerhouse that they are today but one of the reasons why i think that netflix is kind of afraid of fighting on them is that like that was south korea very specifically was one of the many countries that netflix kind of pointed to with like oh um you know if you don't play ball with us we'll just go to south korea and just start importing the next squid game or like the next you know uh, sweet home the next all of us are dead like all these other like you know yeah. incredible incredibly well-made uh korean shows because south korea they're kind of neck and neck with hollywood in terms of actual production value like you look at oh, yeah, a lot of these very... films and it's just like this looks just as good as like pretty much anything out of a, any mainstream studio mm -hmm. and one of the things but like the problem is, is that like if they lose South Korea, they lose one of their big primary bargaining chips. But the problem is, is that that those dominoes have already started to fall. France and Sweden already require Netflix to disclose its uh, subscription data and uh, to, in order to make residual payments, as it's required by law in those countries in order to provide adequate compensation to the actors and artists that work on it. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, but. South Korea, they did the right thing. Like they they they, they went the kind of the the quote unquote cool Japan route of this. I I, I don't like to put them in the same sentence because of all the sure, historical sure. background, but it's effectively similar. Uh, they allowed their in, instead of just being kind of subsumed by Hollywood, subsumed by like you know Hollywood productions just kind of flooding their their cinemas they allowed themselves to maintain their own entertainment industry 
and that's one of the reasons why uh, you actually, I think there was like some, some study that came out that said that like Korean is one of the most sought, sought after languages uh, for incoming linguistic students. I mean, so Korea, yeah, Korea has a standout industry compared to basically everyone except Hollywood. And you, you trace this to South Korea basically doing like an industrial policy except for the film industry instead of like manufacturing or something. And so I guess if, if we're zooming out from that case study a little bit, you know, Hollywood did not dominate the box office by accident is kind of like the implication, right? The State Department used the power of the state to enforce this like hegemonic position of American movies. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, the thing you got to understand is that while it was not a policy accident, um, Hollywood's dominance is kind of a result of the accident of geography. <laughs> and this might sound insane, but give me a moment and I'll go into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. World War One. you have uh, a, like, you have Britain and you have France that are having these massively booming uh, film industries uh, with the advent of uh, motion pictures and theaters. A lot of that stuff gets wiped out as a result of uh, World War One bombings, mm -hmm. all that. Uh, American films, films move in and they start to gain a foothold in that market. And then, a couple decades later, World War Two, same thing happens. Except it's you know, on a much grander, much larger scale. Meaning that oftentimes, and you'll read this in accounts of the occupation of Japan, like what's flooding these in, these uh, film, like a lot of these theaters after the war, are you know all these big Hollywood classics like Gone with the Wind, uh, you know your Hitchcock film, all that kind of stuff, like John Ford movies. Mm -hmm. That's what's hitting the cinemas in places like Tokyo, Berlin, and well, not necessarily Paris because France kind of tries to maintain their uh, own domestic film industry, even in the result of the war. Uh, England tries to do that as well. But with uh, a lot of the Axis countries, Hollywood's just moving in and scooping everything right up. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that kind of creates a huge kind of stepping stone for Hollywood to kind of gain the cultural dominance it does in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And then with the advent of the with Reaganism, and then in the 9-11, you see the State Department getting a lot more aggressive with pushing it and trying to do uh, effectively make it so Hollywood has to like, you know, like, Oh, oh we're on equal footing uh, Japan. Oh, we're on equal footing Canada. Oh, we're on equal footing Australia. And then what they'll, they they'll do. And this is something that my cousins in Australia who uh, work in VFX and videography respectively uh, have told me it effectively killed their local industry because essentially every time that like, there would be something about the size of Mad Max. And by the way, I mean the original Mad Max, not Fury Road. Okay. A nice little genre flick, flick with like broad appeal. Mm -hmm. That would effectively get shoved out uh, and shouted out by the huge deluge in marketing material that Hollywood would spend in those territories. And then they would also buy out local screens, meaning that like, oh, you want the new Star Wars? Well, uh, we're going to have to have like six out of nine of your multiplex screens devoted to just Star Wars. So Hollywood That's has the... like bargaining power that others lack, and it uses that literally in like Slack Capital to hoard literally movie screens at movie theaters. Yes, exactly. Um, That's happened in Canada. That happened in Australia. And effectively, this is uh, what Phil has told me, is it feels like... If you're English language and you're not from, if you're an English language speaker and you're not from the UK, the only industry that's allowed to speak to you, like to you from a cultural standpoint, is Hollywood. And that's not a great place to be in because you look at like uh, in the 90s uh, and 80s, you have in Canada, you have Cronenberg. You have Cronenberg coming up from like the Toronto film scene. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's doing, he's doing all these horror films. He gets mainstream appeal. He comes to the US and makes a lot of work. Same with guys like Peter Weir and George Miller in Australia. And that allowed, you know, Australian filmmakers to kind of like hold their own, to be able to like get these massive movies made. You know, you have Peter Weir make Master of Commander. George Miller still making stuff. He made Fury Road, now regarded as like one of the best action movies of all time. Uh, and it, it's a Hollywood production. It's these major things. But they're able to gain that foothold and that talent because they were able to get recognized for making these 
broad appeal films with cross-border potential in their own domestic film industries. So it was important for like for Cronenberg to have, I don't know, like film grants from the Canadian government or whatever starting out. It was important for Canada to be providing a kind of like a incubator for talent. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, Phil's entire take of it is that like a lot of the Canadian film grants go to like four people and quote unquote, there were everyone just kind of waiting for them to die. So <laughs> the next generation of talent can take over. Like that's how bad it's gotten. And a lot of the production companies that used to produce like uh, traditional Canadian content, like with Canadian production and all that, uh, now effectively work as vehicles to funnel workers to major Hollywood productions. Hmm. So that means that there isn't the avenue for the next Cronenberg or the next Weir yeah. or, th- or the next George Miller. And that's not a great place for a domestic film industry to be in. And by turning the rest of the world into a backlot for Hollywood, we create a structure that reinforces Hollywood centrality, rest of world periphery, margins. Like it, it creates this perpetuating imbalance where everybody keeps looking to Hollywood. And if you end up coming up as a, as a talent in what part of the periphery, you feel like you have to, you're pushed into Hollywood in a way like Hollywood becomes like sucks, sucks talent from everywhere else. So like, this is like a, a perpetual inequality problem. Right. And I once put it this way, it's not anything about California that necessarily lends itself to good stories, much like, uh, you know, uh, Yankee stadium does not mean that like the best baseball players come from New York. That's just where all the money is. Yeah. But occasionally I have seen from certain figures in Hollywood where they assume that like Hollywood's inherent supremacy, uh, ways that it's kind of, uh, forced its hand to be able to put itself in that position. Like, you know, you look at a lot of these Korean films and I'll be honest, they're doing a lot of the drama and they're doing a lot of the production better than some domestic productions I'm seeing here. And to some extent that's because South Korea in this respect, they've told the State Department to kind of fuck off. I mean, like, they're not conceding. Exactly. Yeah, that's fascinating. But the fact is, is that Canada and Australia did not do that. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why their local film industries are so precarious. Um, I, I remember with that thread, uh, I had a former, like, uh, Amazon guy try to debate me in the message and be like, yeah, but some of the highest earners, earners from all of these other countries. I'm like, yeah, but some of those highest earners came uh, into the game and got recognized by Hollywood, like, often close to a decade ago at most, and yeah. two decades, to, I mean, uh, sooner, but like, you know, like 20 to 10 years ago. What about the guys who are coming up now? Yeah. New Zealand's interesting here because um, I, I sit in New Zealand right now. They have a, yep. there's like a national film commission, like a committee or whatever, that mm-hmm. pr- that puts government money into subsidizing a film industry but a it's controlled by like a handful of people and everybody here knows that it's like it's who you know like to get the to subsidy money it's because you're part of a good old boy network or whatever like that's exactly the same problem that uh, phil ran into with canada is that it's the same guys who kind of came up in the 80s that keep on like sending each other money through the film grant commission yeah um that's one of the reasons why they they joke that like, oh, we'll just have to wait for uh, these guys to die before we can really yeah. start making stuff again. It's a so- um, it's a soft corruption that this structure has has wrought. Yeah, and it's not ideal. As I kind of highlighted in my thread, like I firmly believe that when you have this kind of entrenched power, and I think it's one of the reasons why, I, at least I personally believe that there's been kind of a downgrade in quality in terms of storytelling and all that. It's not only because of the factors that involve the streaming in the way they run rooms. But I've noticed that there's also been like a kind of institutional laziness that's come about. Hmm. Like um, you see this with execs that don't want to green write, light anything that's not an established IP because they don't want to have to like tell their boss that, Oh, Oh, this failed, even though like on paper, it sounded good. And it's yeah. like, well, it was, it was based on this bestseller, like New York uh, times book. Uh, it's not my fault. It failed. Like, that's the kind of like a uh, thing that's been going on. And then you also see this when it comes to marketing, it's like, it's become this kind of far cry from what it used to be in like 
you know, you watch Mad Men or something like that and you see like how they're able to like sell you on stuff that you don't need or don't necessarily like want. Now it becomes, well, it's not hitting our four quadrants, so we don't know how to sell this. It's like, it's your job to try to sell this. Yeah. It's your job to make people want this. Yeah. I don't know how much of this connects to like the political economy of the film industry, but your your comment just now made me think of it. Like, why did Marvel movies become the dominant genre? Right. Is there a relationship between streaming and superhero blockbusters or is streaming something separate? Well, I think it it's both connected and separate because the MCU movie, it had its peak uh, when effectively it was using those same tactics I I described uh, that were going on in Australia, where basically like they would buy up like Disney was infamous among like theater chains for basically kind of bullying people into doing it. Like one of the reasons for the death of the small town theater was that effectively that they would demand that uh, like, if you have like something like uh, I'm pulling from my own like personal experience. Cause I grew up near Grand Lynch, Michigan. There's a sun sun theater in Grand Lynch, Michigan. Disney would have demanded that they run the Avengers Endgame for a month straight on its only screen. Huh. Meaning that as of week two, it would be probably losing money. Yeah. I'd never thought about that. So how does streaming connect to that? Because that, well, that seems disconnected. You're right. It does seem disconnected. But what has actually happened is that MCU stuff has actually gotten a little less powerful as a result of streaming because they kind of overextended themselves. Eventually, like, they learned a lot of the bad habits of certain comics and effectively that they wanted to make it so everything is interconnected, which was cool going up to the Avengers, but like, you know, each of those was kind of self-contained. You didn't necessarily need to see all of them in order to enjoy the Avengers. Yeah. But now um, they're taking it like, uh, you know, you open up like an old Superman or like not Superman's DC wrong call uh, Spider-Man comic. It'd be like, okay, to see this, to understand the context of the events, read X-Men 132, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Effectively with a lot of their more recent shows, and this has been a common complaint, they've been doing that. And yeah, I've noticed it's actually that. led to some of their worst ratings uh, overall. So effectively, a lot of the MCU stuff works best when it's like these big event pictures, but they overextended themselves. So I would actually argue that it's slightly separate. Hmm. But um, Disney's uh, brand recognition from the MCU is one of the reasons why they were able to get Disney Plus off the ground. That's a paradox. So there's a, a labor question related to this. Like, do you have a sense of how much practical solidarity there is between like WGA and SAG on the one hand, like the U.S. unions and actors and writers uh, with the actors and writers of other countries, like foreign unions? A lot of them see them as in the same boat. Occasionally you'll uh, run into someone who sees them as competition, but that's only because they're buying the Netflix thing about it. But ultimately... Mm-hmm. The stuff that affects uh, South Korea actually means that if they get what they want, the WGA and SAG are going to be in a better bargaining position for, to get what they want. Because Netflix uh, won't be able to do like an offshoring equivalent, basically. Right. There's even been an example of this uh, with practical effects versus VFX. It's not that practical effects is more expensive. It's that VFX was non-unionized and therefore cheaper. Hmm. That's one of the reasons why the big, they had the big uh, CG VFX uh, extravaganzas. But... Those ended up being a complete uh, mess behind the scenes because people kept on thinking, well, it's just in the computer. We can just change it whenever they want, meaning that. But when they say whenever they want, they mean after um, Bob, our computer graphics programmer, has pulled several all nighters uh, and has put himself in the hospital trying to get this one shot to work. Yeah. The dominance of visual effects, the death of the small town movie screen the dominance of Hollywood and the sort of like impoverishment of movie industries elsewhere. These are all the natural state of things that it seems like, but then what you're telling me, which is like true is that these things are not natural at all. These are the products of particular decisions. These are the, these are the, like the out, the byproducts of trends and it's like in policy design on some level. And so you've denaturalized a lot of the like, hellishness of the of the confusing landscape of of movies here yeah like i think it's very telling that like once a director is able to get the kind of uh push towards practical effects that they're able to do you see this with like guillermo del toro you see this with like christopher nolan and all that they try to push for more practical effects Mm -hmm. i mean um 
Tom Cruise is kind of known as kind of a legendary producer in Hollywood because he kind of understands that like what audiences want is they want to feel danger when they see the hero uh, in in a film. They don't want to feel completely disconnected from the effects. So on the artistic level, people understand this. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately in C-Suite, they don't because a, a lot of these people who are brought in, they're brought in from other industries, hedge funds and other. And I'll be honest, a lot of them don't even like movies. They just see it as a way to make number go up in their stock pro portfolio. Like I remember I was shocked when I went to a major com production company. And I asked and like, you know, the head of development there was asked, Oh, okay. What do you watch? And this is scripted development, by the way, she's in charge of drama, like, and all that. She says YouTube videos and reality television. Ouch. <laughs> my heart sank when I heard that. Oh my God. Yeah. From like, if you're just a blood sucking corporate monster, like if you're just data driven, surely reality TV is like the, the no brainer for you in the short term, because it's like, they cost so much less. You don't have to do the visual effects. You don't have to have big writer's rooms. Like, you just got to find people desperate enough to want to get cash and be on TV. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'll be honest. Like, I kind of view that entire thing like a little exploitative. I, I, I inherently oh, yeah, believe that by its nature it is. Yeah. But, like, they make it a lot. And the advent of reality television was actually in response to the 1990, uh, the 1988 uh, Writers Guild strike. Right. Make, what, what's that connection? Okay. So the Fox at the time was a new network. Uh, they were starring for content uh, when they want, when the 1988 uh, strike happened, they didn't really have a lot of options, but um, some enterprising producer decided, what if we just could get some cameraman and we get them to follow some cops around and just thus the show oh, cops was born. Fuck, That's crazy. Yes, man. History turns on unions. You mentioned earlier, like, you believe that stronger foreign film industries would force America to make better products. Maybe we wouldn't be so locked into like just Marvel. Can you talk about why you think that's the case? Like even in your Twitter thread, you mentioned something about like a nineties action movie template. Yes. Um, so what I mentioned there was specifically that um, a lot of the kind of like you watch like a, a Michael Bay movie from like the 1990s. Like you watch bad boys or you watch the rock and you see like when, the, when they're like firing guns and like everything is flying apart. Like you feel the impact of yeah. every shot. Do you know where he's lifting that from? Tell me John Woo. John Woo. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like a lot of the, the visual dynamism of 1990s action movies is directly influenced by Hong Kong action cinema, where it's just like not only like great fight choreography, but also, like, when a stunt happens, you believe it's real because, like, they're shooting it practically. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're doing, like, you know, the whole, like, they're going to do a gunfight, but everyone's diving through the air <laughs> in ways that would get you killed in reality. Yeah. Because it's not about reality. It's about selling the people the idea of the action. And then um, around 2001, The Born Identity comes out. That is a massive hit. A great movie, by the way, but it inspires this entire trend where because it comes out at the advent of like digital editing. So people think, oh, I could just shoot all this footage and I'll just edit it in a way and that I'll have a complete action scene. That kind of causes this downward trend in a lot of the visual quality of a lot of action. Um, as a result of a lot of people relying a little too heavily on digital editing and, uh, you know, digital mm. cameras, which reaches its absolute nadir. With, I'm pretty sure some of your listeners have seen this. There's a shot in a certain movie of Liam Neeson climbing a fence that uses 14 different cuts. It is utterly incoherent. What? That is the absolute nadir of that kind of editing. But do you know what came out that same year as a response to that trend? John Wick. <laughs> now, John Wick was influenced heavily by the stuff that Gareth Evans was doing in Indonesia with The Raid and The Raid 2. Like, those had come out two years before. But in interviews with the directors, do you know what else they were inspired by? No. The narrative minimalism of Jean-Pierre Melville. His crime films from the 1970s in, from France. So they were inspired by that. And they were inspired by Indonesian and Korean action cinema. 
and the way that they held on these shots and they made it very clear what was happening as opposed to just try to make it an incoherent mess to kind of sell you on the, oh, this is dangerous. And in doing so, they created the current trend in action, which is like very John Wick style, clear action, you know, long takes, like, you know, we're trying to impress you again. We're not trying to cheat you. We're trying to make you feel like this is actually happening. And now we have a 20 minute long take fight sequence in uh, Extraction 2. So some of the or a lot of the innovations that we see or that we're impressed by in Hollywood filmmaking is a response to or inspiration from foreign film industries, from others doing it first, doing it better. Right. A lot of it is. Yeah. I remember a while back I had a discussion with a certain writer and, you know, I was talking about, like, the quality of, like, a lot of the overseas film and it's, like, how generally good they are. But, like, like you know, Hollywood's... And he responded to me, Hollywood's still king. And I'm like, why do you believe that? And he's just like, well, we invented film. That's not true. The first feature film was Australian. I believe it was about Ned Kelly. That is the first <laughs> ever feature film. And, like, you know, a lot of our editing terminology comes from the Soviet Union with Vertov hmm. and Eisenstein. And like pretty much a lot of the stuff that we're doing is from just all sorts of filmmakers all over the world. But overall, I think that this mythology has been kind of created in recent years about Hollywood's total dominance, which, you know, as I mentioned, is a result of complete geographic flukes. Yeah, I have a speculative parting question or like a big picture way to sort of wrap this up how do you see the future of the movie industry you know full stop like is streaming a viable model long term like what do you what's what what should we be looking at trends wise yeah um streaming is kind of a mixed bag right now because it's kind of hard to tell how valuable it is long term there's certain behaviors by the studio that kind of indicate that it might not be as viable as they thought Mm mm-hmm um you're seeing disney plus actually start releasing a lot of its uh shows on 4k which kind of gives uh credence to the theory that they kind of realize that it may not be viable long term and we might be seeing a return to actual physical media Hmm. um i mean you're already seeing kind of a degradation that used to happen uh if you look for any film made prior to 1990 you may run into difficulty uh finding it just the other night, I was trying to look for William Freakins to live and die in L.A. Could not find it on any streaming service. No way. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I was looking for Strange Days the other day, the James Cameron one. And in New Zealand, I couldn't find it on any of the platforms. I think in the U.S., it's on, like, one one thing. But even on, like, Apple TV, it's not here. Yeah. Like, that's a, like, you know, like, to live and die in L.A. wasn't even available for rent for, like, that's like classic. Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And, like, that kind of degradation we're kind of seeing often. And, like, a lot of it, I think, got kind of spurred by um, the kind of tax holding that happened with Zaslav. Zaslav kind of opened a Pandora's box in regard to bad business practice, where they're basically like, "Um, yeah, I know that we made this thing and it was successful, but uh, we're going to claim that it's not successful, and then we're going to write it off so we can save money on our taxes. Yeah, but, like, that kind, I, I don't know if that is some kind of like weird thing that's been going on with like a lot of these businesses, but the fact that they're relying on this kind of lends credence to like, this is not the behavior of someone making rational decisions with a company. Yeah. This is the behavior of someone that might be in dire financial straits. Or like the Batgirl, you film Batgirl and then you exactly you can it before it ever releases like but you've exactly. got the shit in your hands like yeah, yeah like there's a lot of things that kind of indicate that behind the scenes you might be seeing like a lot of issues there i think that streaming is going to exist simply because there are times where people just want to be able to sit down and watch a movie at the end of the work and like you know it's a great delivery system i think that you might see a, a shrinkage in original content which you know not great for a lot of writers but ultimately might rely uh result in a healthier more long-term industry mm-hmm. um there, there's stuff that you heard about uh with um guys like uh ben affleck and uh matt damon where they talked about the, the kind of movies that they used to make anymore can't can't weren't viable because uh you know 
secondary purchases outside of the theater would have like made it viable. Yeah. So I mean, meaning that even if it didn't make all of its money from the theater, it was making all the secondary money from DVD sales and online purchases. And that's gone. Yeah. Well, that's grim. I mean, you said you do you anticipate a kind of consolidation of the streamers because right now we've got this proliferation. Yeah, I think that you're probably going to see a lot of consolidate uh, consolidation. Uh, personally, I believe Amazon's kind of in good standing because um, effectively it's a tax write-off for the rest of Amazon. I was going like, to say, they have a lot of money to work with. <laughs> right, like, no, no, this is a fact, and this has been told to me, that, like, effectively Amazon runs Amazon Prime Video not out of profit, but, well, one, Jeff Bezos likes being in Hollywood. Like, that. that yeah. that's, that's a fact. Two, it's just... It's a great soak for it being written off as a loss for the rest of the company. Mm -hmm. And that means that it's in a better position than a lot of these other companies that only have the service. But um, with a lot of lesser streamers, I think that you're already seeing some consolidation. There's a lot of uh, indicators that uh, certain streaming services may not survive. Netflix might be profitable now, but I don't know. Some of the behavior during the strike has made me kind of wonder how how much their actual financials are. They've emerged as kind of a villain. I mean, like for how, how prevalent they are in all of our homes and stuff and like how mm -hmm. they seem to have a dominant position, but suddenly like, I don't know, man, it doesn't, <laughs> what about reality TV supplanting the scripted show? I think it, you're going to like, they tried to do that in the nineties and early two thousands. They tried, but eventually Everyone went back to scripted. Yeah. You you hear this described in uh, The Disaster Artist by Greg Sincero. Like one of the reasons why his career was floundering in the late 90s was specifically because of the huge uptick in reality TV uh, as a result of MTV. Hmm. And that meant that like, you know, he didn't, he had to say yes to Tommy Wiseau's movie. <laughs> but anyway, um, there might be an uptick, but eventually people kind of get sick of it, I think. You know, it's one of those things like, you got to be in a certain state of mind to enjoy it. But eventually it's just like, you just kind of look at yourself one day and you'd be like, God, do I really want to be watching this for the rest of my life? <laughs> yeah. We need stories. Do you imagine if, can you imagine a future where like there are other foreign hubs that are, are smaller versions of Hollywood and Hollywood is like massively diminished or is, is, are they too locked in as the dominant? Hollywood is locked in, but a lot of that is contingent on the power of the State Department. We are already seeing kind of America in decline in a lot of aspects. Yeah. So it wouldn't be surprised to see more hubs like Korea kind of grow. I mean, you're already seeing this. Like, it's kind of parallel to what uh, you're seeing in uh, in Asia Pacific, where everything used to be super unilateral, but now uh, America is bringing in Australia, Japan, South Korea, and other local allies. Multipolarity, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a much better world in all fairness. Hmm. I think that's uh, a more just world when it comes to uh, entertainment. I don't believe that America should speak for everyone in the world. <laughs> uh, God knows we aren't great at it. <laughs> God, that reminds me a little bit. Um, I, I, I I went to Japan recently, and uh, I remember uh, we went to this one place, and uh, I picked up a samurai I picked up a samurai sword and like uh, one of the local uh, people just looked at me and said, Tom Cruise. And we both laughed really hard. <laughs> oh man. Uh, yeah. But it's just like a lot of that I think is just down to the fact that uh, Americans can got, kind of get pigheaded. A lot of the times they just kind of wander in, not doing their homework and then expect to kind of just be like, okay, we'll do it this way. Mm -hmm. uh, which is exactly how Walmart failed in Germany. <laughs> that's a great that's a great um way to end this kevin fox thanks for coming this was like one of my favorite episodes ever i've done like 160 of these things um i've learned a lot and uh oh, yeah i think the listeners have too where can people find you on like twitter or anything like that yeah i go under uh mishigrim k m-i-c-h-i-g-r-i-m-k uh, on twitter.com I also have uh, my website uh, kevinclarkfox at gmail.com uh, in about two years you'll see a video game that I wrote on So, but I can't talk about it yet but 
look forward uh, to it. Yeah, you can find me uh, on Twitter or X as it's now unfortunately known. Another brand, another narcissistic brand change. Yes. <laughs> it just keeps on happening. What is going that's, on? Yeah, something's broken. Um, okay, that's great. I'll throw those uh, contact points in the show notes too. All this right. is fun, man. Thank you. Yeah, great chatting with you. Yeah, likewise. All right.